Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, welcome to Season 12 of Trashy Divorces. Glad to have you with us. My name is Stacy. I'm Alicia. Oh my gosh, Season 12, I'm so excited. We are so excited. And thank you for listening to our Only Murders in the Building themed episode. We have become hooked on Hulu's Only Murders in the Building. If we're, There are no spoilers in this episode, don't worry if you're not watching it. It's fine. <laughs> and we've been doing some absolute spoiler-rich episodes over on Patreon as well. <laughs> if you are watching. <laughs> We're going to take a little magical mystery tour today. Stacy. you are bringing us the trashy divorce of... Steve Martin! I have such affection for him. He's just wonderful. It's such a nice palate cleanser after the last profile I did. You have a, a little... A little bit of a curve. A little bit of a curve. Today we're going to talk about the trashy divorces of Kirstie Alley. Which includes, yeah. The dreamiest of Hardy Boys, Parker Stevenson, is one of her ex-husbands. Now, some girls were Sean Cassidy girls. I was not a Sean Cassidy girl. I was a Parker Stevenson girl all the way in the Hardy Boys. If you are watching Only Murders in the Building, you know there's a little Hardy Boy homage love thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So It all fit together when it, we were it, season 12 planning. Indeed. Hey, before we begin, maybe we dive into the magic mirror? Oh my gosh, I got love and thanks and praise. First up, we got a bunch of new people who joined our Panda Nation over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. These folks are getting early and ad-free episodes dumpster dives this month of October. It's all treats, no tricks. We have two new series running over there, Trashy Victorians and my new Labor of Love. Yep. Love letters to Laurel Canyon. Trash candy to delight every level of support over there. I got this magic mirror. It's sparkly. Who's in it, Stacy? Thank you for joining us, Fernanda. Jessica W. CC. Nairi C. Melissa H., Kimberly T., and Jack. Anne, Ellie E., Emily M., Lauren B., Jane M., Kim F., Fonda C. Holy cats, thank you so, so much for joining our Patreon family. Have some super supporters to shout out as well. Christy T., thank you. Nancy B., girl, love you more than my luggage. Thanks, y'all, for coming back and listening for supporting us over on Patreon. I got two more quick people that I see in the magic mirror today. Mm -hmm. Number one, big thanks to Carrie, who has me all hooked up on the Vanderbilt Century book. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. going to be coming for you on Done and Done, which premieres November 1st. As well as Olivia C., mm -hmm. who hand-knitted us these gorgeous, gorgeous. ball scarves. Mm -hmm. We cannot wait for it to get cold here in Atlanta. Do it, weather... <laughs> I see one more tiny, tiny, I see a tiny cute baby in the magic mirror. I'm sending all the baby love to Miss Kimberly. I haven't heard which actual episode of Trashy Divorces was playing in the delivery room when your bundle of joy arrived, but I love her. She is a sweet, sweet baby doll, and we are so excited for you. 
And we are deeply honored to have been part of that in whatever way. Better in that way than in the actual delivery part way. Kimberly, that one was all on you, sister. Well done. Well done. Congrats. All right, babe. I think that's the business. Alicia, what needs to happen now? We got to hop on board the Magical Mystery Tour and go, go, go. Stacey, I'm excited about your profile this week. (laughs) Wild and crazy guy. You know, it's funny you say that because apparently not a wild and crazy guy, but yeah, I know sometimes we go pretty hard at people on this show, but I will not tell a lie. I started researching Steve Martin with the profound hope that he's a good guy and not really trashy. And I'm pleased to report that, yeah, that seems to be the case. There are some trashy bits. And his soul divorce seems to have gotten some play in the Australian tabloids that really sucked. Although that was kind of other people being trashy, not really him. Mostly, though, this is just going to be me loving the life, the milieu, the career of, oh gosh, all the words, actor, comedian, writer, Grammy-winning musician, producer, and of late fictional true crime podcasting sleuth on Hulu's Only Murders in the Building, Steve Martin. This sends the podcast into a whole new direction. (laughs) I'm going to avoid spoilers, but uh, there's just, there's a lot here. Anyway, if you're not watching the show yet, there won't be spoilers. So don't worry about that. Steve Martin is a guy who is routinely described as private, introverted, and to quote one friend, as zany as a CPA. No. We are, we are zany. proud to know a truly zany CPA. Anyway, interviews with Steve Martin are very interesting because in nearly every single one, the interviewer definitely includes how uncomfortable the experience of interviewing Steve Martin is apparently for both of them. Really? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because he produces stuff constantly. I mean, he is like, he writes books. He records albums he makes movies he makes tv shows like there's always he gets interviewed a lot and it appears to just be difficult (laughs) which i'm sure makes the next interview even more uncomfortable for steve martin right like anyway stephen glenn martin was born august 14th 1945 so leo man Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he is texan by birth and californian by i'm sorry texans uh but he was born in waco and his dad was in real estate, but had some aspirations to to become a star. His mom stayed home to raise Steve and his sister Melinda, who's a few years older. Dad wanted to be an actor. Mom hated the heat. So when Steve was five, they headed to Los Angeles. Fantastic. So, yeah, he grew up in Inglewood and then Garden Grove, California. It seems like his mom had a pretty normal parental relationship with her kids, but his dad, especially as Steve grew out of the cute little kid phase was increasingly stern and critical of his son. His father also had a quick temper and handled spanking duty, as dads did in the day. There was an incident when Steve was about nine where his father legit beat him, but he says that was the last time his dad was physically abusive to him and he was never physically abusive to his mother or sister. Still, these dynamics would unsurprisingly warp their relationship for decades, and though his father left the world mostly reconciled with his son... Steve has said that when he was the king of comedy in the late 1970s, when he was up on stage, he felt like he was trying to get his dad's attention. Wow. 
Imago. It's yeah, a powerful for, thing. For real. Um, and, and I think it certainly informs uh, some of the storytelling on the show. Anyway, in the libertarian paradise of 1950s California, a 10-year-old Steve Martin got a job selling guidebooks at Disneyland, which had just opened. Holy cow. He, he remains a Disney booster to this day. Like, this was the magical kingdom for him. Picks up some extra cash. Cuts all of his father's purse strings at the age of 10. <laughs> anyway, it had one interesting impact for him. The park had magic shops, and he was fascinated by magicians and the secrets of magic. As I mean, oh, as 10-year-olds tend to be. Yeah. By his mid-teens, Steve had advanced enough in his skills as a magician that he got a job in one of the shops. Apparently, after you hit about 13, you can't sell guidebooks anymore at Disney. I don't understand Interesting. the line of thought there, but they wanted a bunch of 10 and 11-year-olds there on the weekends handing out guidebooks. Anyway, so he gets a job in one of the magic shops, and then he apprentices more or less under all these like old guys who knew all the magic tricks. They had come out of vaudeville mostly. Oh wow. And so yeah, so like he's, what an education. Yeah, he's like 14, 15 and like learning crowd control, like audience management from these guys who'd been doing it 30 years ago. All of this imprinted in his brain. In an appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in the late 70s or early 80s, Johnny leaned over to Steve during a commercial break and said, you'll use everything you ever knew. And that boyhood fascination with magic and rope tricks and sleight of hand and all the bits and bobs of wisdom passed on by these grizzled showbiz vets all played their parts in what would become a fine-tuned, high-energy stage show and then an expansive, multidisciplinary career that has spanned, of course, decades. His early performance experiences post-high school graduation and while attending college were melodramas at Knott's Berry Farm. Really? Yeah, it was like the older cousin of Disney, but... Steve Theme Park Martin, man. That's great. In between the very low-key, it was like 25-minute performances. It was just... Like, it was just to get a couple more bucks out of people who'd walked through the door. Anyway, actors would take turns doing what amounted to, like, little five-minute intermission performances. And this is the origin in 1963 of the stage show that would make Steve Martin one of the most beloved performers alive years later. His college years and beyond included their fair share of romances. There was photographer Mitzi Trumbo, daughter of screenwriter and novelist Dalton Trumbo, who he was blacklisted in the 40s. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he. there's a whole fascinating thing about him. Mitzi's relationship with Steve ended when her father took her to Budapest, where he was filming a movie, and she fell for the director, John Frankenheimer, on set. No. I believe they're still good friends, though, I, I think. In his 2007 memoir, Born Standing Up, which much of this is pulled from, Steve notes that 20 years later, John Frankenheimer, the director, would try once again, this time to seduce his wife. Oh, no. He failed. Uh, but Steve writes, incidentally, Frankenheimer died a few years ago, but it was not I who killed him. <laughs> <laughs> Another girlfriend was Nina Goldblatt, a dancer who, under the stage name Nina Lawrence, went on to work on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour years after they had split up and, and gone their friendly separate ways. So in 1967, she reaches out to Steve and is like, hey, you know, the show is looking for young comedy writers. And even though Steve had no experience as a comedy writer, just as a young. <laughs> he fit that. He, he had that qualification. That was the box. Uh, and he checked it. So the head writer, 
Nina's boyfriend at the time, uh, decided to take a chance on him. And I think he even paid him out of pocket because the show wasn't sure they wanted to invest. Like, initially, it it worked out. Steve would win an Emmy at the age of 23. No. (laughs) I mean, the whole writing team did, but yes. Wow. But again, young, he checked that box. Uh, He was still working on his stand-up at night, even on the show. Clubs like the Troubadour... He was honing his chops. The Troubadour, of course. I mean, your eyes light up anytime the Troubadour comes up. So it was a huge hotbed of emerging talent at this time. Steve talks about the time he opened for Linda Ronstadt there. Also young. Checking boxes. Anyway, Linda Ronstadt is a goddess. He was so taken with her. And uh-huh. in fact, they went out several times, but he was super intimidated by her. He, he says her talent and her street smarts just fried his brain and eventually after a number of dates she was like steve do you often date girls and not try to sleep with them oh he says that they parted chastely oh <laughs> on his style of comedy steve gave a lot of thought to the idea that laughter happens when a storyteller creates tension and then provides a punchline that allows the listener to release the tension in laughter He also took note that a lot of comedians had vocal or visual cues that would indicate to the audience when it was time to laugh. Bob Hope had patter, you know, another comedian would, would, I don't know, touch himself. (laughs) That sounds bad. Anyway. (laughs) Phrasing. um, Phrasing. (laughs) uh, He writes, these notions stayed with me for months until they formed an idea that revolutionized my comic direction. What if there were no punchlines? What if there were no indicators? What if I created tension and never released it? What if I headed for a climax, but all I delivered was an anticlimax? What would the audience do with all that tension? Theoretically, it would have to come out sometime, but if I kept denying them the formality of a punchline, the audience would eventually pick their own place to laugh, essentially out of desperation. This type of laugh seems stronger to me as they would be laughing at something they chose rather than being told exactly when to laugh. So to make this work, he had some rules for the act that he was developing. First, He could never let the audience know he was bombing. He just had to like thrust forward with the attitude that this is funny. You just haven't gotten it yet. Well, that's the thing with public speaking. Nobody knows you're screwing up until you say in your speech, man, I'm really screwing this up. Well, but what I think what made this comic versus just pushing forward is the second rule was that he had to make the audience believe that he himself thought he was fantastic (laughs) proceeding through the act, even if there was no reaction in the crowd with an absolutely unshakable confidence. hundred percent. Sort of like, yeah, sort of an idiot. (laughs) It was a genius clown move. Anyway, his goal was to make it impossible for an audience to say exactly what it was that was so funny. You really just had to be there. Hence. Hence, yes. Throughout the 1970s, he was doing more TV appearances, mostly on daytime talk shows, celebrity, blah, blah, blah. Gradually, he worked into the rotation on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. He was touring widely, which sounds like it was a complete nightmare of loneliness. Comedy clubs had not emerged yet. There were no cell phones, obviously, no internet. Long-distance phone calls were super expensive. And mostly, I think he was just driving solo or with like somebody to help him with gear to little college towns or folk clubs or smoky bars and yeah, cities all over the country. It was like terrible, but also he was creatively free in this environment in a way that he never would be again. 
And so these random audiences in random places gave him real evolutions in his act. He had one college show that was basically performed in a classroom that only had one door at the back of the room. And so the audience was between him and the exit. And when the show ended, he could not convince them that the show had ended. Oh, no. He kept saying, like, no, I'm done. He packed up his stuff and they were just wrapped. They were just got to go. They didn't. (laughs) So he continues bantering as he makes his way through the crowd, which followed him out of the room and (laughs) out onto the quad. (laughs) And he just keeps ad-libbing at this point, because what do you do? And so, Show's over, man! Basically. <laughs> so they come upon a drained swimming pool, and Steve directed the crowd to get into it, and then announced that he was going for a swim, and they crowd-surfed him over this empty pool. Oh like, my god. Right, and so he incorporated this, like, walking the audience outside for several years until the crowds got too big. He once took, <laughs> he once took a crowd in Nashville to a nearby McDonald's and no! ordered 300 hamburgers <gasps> to go. He changed it to a bag of fries right away, but like that was the bit. Yeah, eventually he had to stop because his the crowds were too big. And so if they went outside, there were people on the road, they could be hit by a car. And the they couldn't hear him after a certain crowd size. That is an amazing story. Right? It's so great. So from Steve's book, Born Standing Up, uh, my set lists from this period, now tattered and yellowed, Remind me of forgotten routines. I would sing I Can See Clearly Now and then walk into the mic. <laughs> I would juggle kittens, swapping the real kitten for a stuffed lookalike. I would stand in spilled water and touch the mic, faking an electric shock, then do it again as though I had enjoyed it. <laughs> I remember that one, actually. I had a long routine for me in which I confessed my weird sexual fetish. I like to wear men's underwear. <laughs> All right. 1977, he and Bernadette Peters struck up a relationship. Really? That, yeah, they would. that would last for several years, produce some very important work. I mean, she was in The Jerk, which was Steve's 1979 breakout film. Uh, 1981's Pennies from Heaven, which earned Bernadette a Golden Globe Award. Also in 1977, Steve's debut comedy album, Let's Get Small, mm-hmm. was released and sold... A million and a half copies. He was playing to huge venues now, tens of thousands of people. 1978's A Wild and Crazy Guy album was even bigger, went to number two on the charts. And a song from the second record, King Tut, was released as a single that went to number 17 on the U.S. charts. The early 80s was weird, man. It was weird. There was a touring Egyptian artifacts exhibit around Mm -hmm. the country so there was a little bit of a feedback loop. Um, this also incorporated his old friends, uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, which oh, I know yeah. ties into your... No, Long Aspen Ties, yeah. Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, good, good stuff. King Tut sold a million copies to the song. And his first two stand-up albums won Grammys. I'm not sure, I'm not sure if there are other artists who've won Grammys and comedy or spoken word, whatever that category is or was back then, and music, but Steve Martin has. Anyway, uh, he was into his 30s now, hosting SNL on the regular. He understood he was at the top of the roller coaster that was his live performing career. His particular brand of comedy was conceptual. It was designed to ambush the audience and change how they engaged with comedy. Once people knew, if you know you're being ambushed, you're not being ambushed. Right. So by 1979, he was writing The Jerk, along with Carl Reiner and Michael Elias. 
this is where finally there was a cast, there was a crew, there were other creatives, there were people to talk to. He could have a kind of normal work day. He could stay in one place for a minute. It was it was nice. He liked movies. The Jerk became a huge success at the box office. Obviously, it's considered a classic. And uh, Steve's father, ever helpful, went out with Steve and a bunch of his friends after the the screening, first screening, the premiere of it. And when asked what he thought, he said, well, he's no Charlie Chaplin. Oh, God. Thanks, yeah. Dad. Thanks, Dad. Good work. Good, good dadding there. Yikes. A third comedy album in 79 had not matched the success of the first two. And Steve Martin writes that by 1981, quote, my act was like an overly plumed bird whose next evolutionary step was extinction. No. He's a good writer. He hung up his stand-up spurs and did not look back for decades. After things with Bernard at Peter's cooled off, not sure how that all ended. Again, he's a very private person. Uh, he apparently had a bit of an interlude with Mary Tyler Moore. Interesting. Did she pop up in your Warren Beatty yeah. story? Yeah, yeah. she lived across the way from... Diane Keaton, who is mm -hmm. Steve Martin's best friend. Spiderwebs. Spiderwebs. Everywhere. 1984. While filming all of me, Steve meets British actress Victoria Tennant. She was born September 30th, 1950. She grew up in London's theater scene. Her mother was a Russian prima ballerina, and her father was a talent agent who repped, I don't know, Laurence Olivier, wow. who was her godfather. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Victoria had just come off the very successful TV miniseries, The Winds of War, opposite Robert Mitchum. She'd been married for a few years back in the 70s, but it was a young love thing that had not worked out. She and Steve tied the knot in 1986 and went on to make L.A. Story together in 1991 a film that was widely hailed as a love letter to their love story. I've got a quote from Victoria during the publicity tour for L.A. Story when she is asked whether Steve Martin, by now her husband of five years, is as irrepressibly daffy in real life as his character in L.A. Story. He plays a, an absurdist weatherman. Right. Okay. She replies, quote, It would be dreadful to live with someone who started tap dancing the moment you open the fridge. It's not like waking up in Las Vegas every morning. <laughs> So. <laughs> so not the adventurous actor guy is what I'm saying. As wild as a CPA. <laughs> Very unfortunately for Steve Martin, Victoria Tennant's career took her to Australia soon after to work on a show called Snowy River, the McGregor Saga. I don't know if this made its way to the United States. I am not familiar with it. Looks like it's kind of a Wild West period piece set in a remote Australian town. But it was apparently a Big show in Australia. In okay. The, in this period. I get the feeling something bad oh, is very, going to happen in very, Snowy River. Very bad. Very bad. On September 19th, 1993, a short item rippled through U.S. papers. Martin Tennant separate after nearly seven years with Steve's publicist saying that things were amicable between them and that as of yet they had taken no further steps to dissolve their marriage beyond separating. What had happened was, oh, no. as a rather gross Australian tabloid headline blared the following year, Victoria had fallen for her co-star, actor Andrew Clark, a big mustachioed fellow a few years her junior, whose photos all suggest a certain earthy gregariousness. New Idea magazine ran an interview with Clark titled, I Won Steve Martin's Wife. No. Oh, yeah. No. Gross, gross. Followed by the subhead... Australian heartthrob Andrew Clark, 
says his on-screen love scenes with English star Victoria Tennant are now being reenacted for real oh, off stop. screen. Yeah, that's some yuck. Gaggy. That's some super yuck. I would note that um, Steve Martin continues to uh, like travel to Australia. He has done some work there, and he supports indigenous artists. There. He holds He's- nothing against... Yes. The nation of Australia. It's uh, He would be forgiven if he did, though. <laughs> <laughs> a year after that, Andrew Clark himself was kicked to the can. Oh. Which tabloids also trumpeted. Victoria dumps Aussie hunk. First Steve, now Andrew. Victoria's a serial dumper. Phrasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the phrasing win. Of your story. Yeah. So uh, Victoria married an entertainment lawyer in 96 and has been married to him ever since. Oh, good for her. Yeah. Steve was in for a tumultuous romantic period here in the mid-1990s. His next girlfriend was none other than actress and Trashy Divorces alum, Anne Heche, who would leave him after a couple of years for Ellen DeGeneres before she would leave Ellen DeGeneres by hiking into the California desert and fortunately for her, I think, stumbling upon the home of a guy who called for some help. Backup. Need some backup. (laughs) Maybe some assistance. The later 90s were not super fun for Steve, but they seem to have been pretty transformative. He read a lot of self-help and relationship advice books, apparently. He focused less on film, which he found tiring and often uninspiring, more on writing and music. He published short humor pieces in The New Yorker, some fiction. He did some playwriting adaptations for the stage. And he turned his attention to his musical side. He's played banjo since he was 17. Mm-hmm. He's very talented. He's very talented, but he actually says that none of what he has is talent. It was all work. Like, he he didn't just pick the banjo up and play. Like, it it was work. It's um, all work. His buddy in the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band helped him oh, like, that's learn nice. how to play banjo. Mm-hmm. So in 2002, he picked up a Grammy for a remake of Foggy Mountain Breakdown with Earl Scruggs. He picked up another Grammy in 2010 for his first all-music album, The Crow, New Songs for the Five-String Banjo. He tours with the Steep Canyon Rangers. He's made records with Edie Brickell. He's a consummate bluegrass nerd and booster. In the mid-2000s, Steve got a phone call from a fact-checker at The New Yorker who was working on one of his pieces for the magazine. Apparently, they had a very pleasant conversation. This was the New York-based Anne Stringfield this led to further phone calls, and oh. then a year of phone calls before these two introverts decided to meet up in person. Really? Oh, this is a little love story. It, it is, yeah. They married in 2007 in a surprise ceremony. Tom Hanks, Diane Keaton, Eugene Levy, Carl Reiner, and some 70 other guests had simply been invited to a party at Steve's house, and when they arrived... It was a wedding. Uh, SNL's Lorne Michaels was Steve's best man. And Bob Carey, former senator from Nebraska, 92. Really? Presidential candidate officiated the ceremony for them. Oh, wow. Um, Not sure. Spiderwebs. Yeah. Uh, True to Steve's very private form, the pair are rarely spotted on Hollywood's red carpets. And they didn't initially publicize the birth of their daughter in 2012. There was a Letterman appearance the following year, and Steve joked about how they hadn't even announced the name. They, like, they had by then announced that there was a baby. They would not announced the name. And so he was like, yeah, we went with Conquistador because we didn't <laughs> want to 
pick one of those weird Hollywood names. <laughs> Letterman's like Conquistador Martin. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, so here we are. Steve Martin is 76 years old and he certainly seems to be having the time of his life lately. He's a dad. He became a touring comic again. And I think 2016 is when he and Martin Short and the Steve Canyon Rangers went out on the road with An Evening You Will Forget for the Rest of Your Life, <laughs> which yielded a terrific 2018 Netflix special that... It was very funny, yeah, that we, little bit I watched. watched last night. Uh, Only Murders in the Building, which he created with executive producer John Hoffman, apparently grew out of an idea that Steve has been kicking around for a decade or so. And while the pandemic introduced challenges to it coming to fruition, I mean, they filmed it you know, pre-vaccine for the most part. Uh, I think it also contributed a lot of texture to a story that I think fundamentally is about the ways that people connect, you know, from the mind of someone who spent a lot of his life trying to figure out how to connect. So I only have halos for Steve Martin. Only, only halos for Steve Martin. Uh, but there are some links to funny stuff below. So if you need a Tina Fey appreciation of Steve Martin or Steve Martin's monologue from the O3 Oscars to brighten your day. And trust me, you do enjoy. Well done. Thanks. Steve Martin, you deserve to break after Mel Gibson. Yes. Oh, this is like the polar opposite of... <laughs> this is running through the field of all the good trash. Yeah, I don't think Steve Martin has ever threatened to kill anyone's dog to an interviewer. Uh, so, no, this is this was lovely. It, it was a very nice change of pace. Show's over, man. Show's <laughs> over. We gotta go. Actually, the show isn't over. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to take a break. Well done. We'll be we'll right catch back with on the... You've got the trashy end of things this time. <laughs> 100%. 100%. I looked out with Gina Davis last time. You did. It's, wow, we really, we swapped. <laughs> Happy season 12. Yep. All right. Back in a minute. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. While it is hard to follow National Cat Month, October is bringing it strong with National Women's Small Business Month. The Women's Business Ownership Act, signed into law in October of 1988, finally ended the requirement some states still had for a man to co-sign on a woman's business loan. The four pillars of the law were to address the need for technical training to maximize growth potential of women-owned business, inequality of access to commercial credit, virtual exclusion of women-owned business from government procurement activities, and the inadequacy of information and data relative to women-owned business. 30 years later, the annual business survey reports that there are more than 1.1 million small businesses owned by women. This number is growing every year. More than half of these businesses have one to four employees. That's right, ladies. Making the most of the gig economy, we are talking about you too. From your Trashy Divorces family and our friends at the Oak Tree Group, thank you for supporting women-owned businesses. To all the women also running a business, big shout out to you. For your free one-hour financial consultation, contact the Oak Tree Group at www.theoaktreegroup.net or call them at 770-319-1700. Alicia, you have someone who should be a beloved star of stage and screen, but there's so much trash. So we would have covered Martin Short. We would have. <laughs> but that happy bastard, yeah. no trashy divorce. We would have gone to Edward Stratemeyer, who created the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew series, mm-hmm. but that happy bastard, no trashy divorce. <laughs> so I had to roll into the Hardy Boys sure. and Parker, St- the dreamiest, <laughs> the dreamiest Hardy Boy, okay. Parker Stevenson, which gets us to Kirstie Alley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the magical mystery tour of Kirstie Alley. Okay. Spirited girl. Indeed. Kirstie Louise Alley was born January 12th, 1951. She's a Capricorn gal in Wichita, Kansas. She has a brother and a sister. Typical Midwestern upbringing. Her dad owns a lumber company. Her mom is a homemaker. Does all the typical Wichita things. Is Wichita a big Scientology town? (laughs) No, we're not to Scientology yet. (laughs) Okay. Kirstie graduates from Wichita Southeast High School in 1969 and enrolls in Kansas State University, but doesn't stay for very long. Because Kirstie has fallen in love at 16, and all she wants to do is be a bride. We've seen this. Mm -hmm. She just wants to get married. Oh, I thought you were going to say had fallen in love with acting, but okay. No, her first love is her high school sweetheart Mm -hmm. named Bob Alley. Okay. Okay. I have a feeling they get married. Coincidentally, Bob Alley and Kirstie Alley have the same name. Perhaps distantly related, perhaps distant branches of cousins. I feel like... Some sources say they are not related. Some sources say they are distantly related. But another odd coincidence, Bob Alley is also the name of Kirstie's father. 
So, wow. Amago. That, that's, wow. The couple starts dating when Kirsty's 16 and they marry in 1970 when she is 20. She says she is working at a sweatshop of a laundry. Bob is in veterinary school, okay. which is great during their marriage and respectable. Bob is going to graduate mm-hmm. become a veterinarian. Kirsty has dropped out of college, a little bit unsure of her direction or goals in life. And this is a little intimidating for her because she feels like Bob's future is clear and bright and her future is just being Bob's wife. And she says that terrifies her. And they get married at 20. By the time Kirsty's 24, she and her husband have bought their first house overlooking the ocean in Redondo Beach. She has a BMW. And Bob is a partner in his vet practice. Mm-hmm. Things are going great. This doesn't sound terrible, yeah. Well, Kirsty will describe herself as, quote, restless, useless, jobless, sexless, lifeless, bored with no direction, unquote. Okay. Well, okay. that doesn't sound great. <laughs> so here's young, cute Kirsty hitting the beach in her bikini because it's just right across. The, I mean, you just sure. got to go downstairs. And yeah. There's a whole new world. There's flirting mm-hmm. and boys all over. Right. And there's something very different happening on the West Coast Mid-20s. than there is yeah. Yeah, back in Wichita. Kirsty will meet a man named Jake, a blue-eyed pseudo-cowboy with a quote-unquote ripped body, according to her. She will write this in her book. Again, all links for right. this story included in show notes. She will write about the most memorable kiss of her life in a few days later. Kirsty has decided she does not want to be married anymore. Marrying at 20 is a it's lot. It's tough, right? Yeah. She will tell Entertainment Tonight. This is Kirsty. I screwed up the relationship with Bob. He had everything. He was an amazing singer. He was handsome. He rode horses. He looked like the Marlboro Man. So I was sort of lost. I knew how worthless I was. We dated for four years before we were married. I was so immature. I thought I wanted to be married when I was 16, and I sort of stayed 16 through the whole marriage. When we moved to California, I was flirting with boys on skateboards. I sort of went crazy. She will continue. I sort of cheated. I didn't have sex with him, but I think it was worse when you fall in love with someone else, when you're with someone and you're plotting and you're planning. What I did do with Jake was I kissed him. And in my world, in Kirsty world, that meant I had to get a divorce. I mean, it it does sound like she probably needed to get a divorce and take some time to figure out. In closing, she will say, it took a long time to forgive myself because I was a horrible person. I destroyed my marriage. Uh, tricky, right? I mean, 16 to 24 is like, I don't know. You, you, I mean... You're a different person at 25 than you are at 15. (laughs) You're a different person at 35 than you are at 25. Yeah. At 45. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. Bob, Allie, and Kirsty, Mm -hmm. Allie, will separate and will eventually divorce in 1977. So she kept his name. (laughs) (laughs) Divorce number one. Done. (laughs) After her divorce, Kirsty goes back to Kansas and becomes engaged again. What? She's working as an interior designer, but she still feels directionless. And this becomes sort of a recipe for disaster. Although Kirsty says she never did drugs in high school or college, 
she will admit being addicted after starting to use cocaine at the age of 25. Kirsty will tell Howard Stern that she first used cocaine around the time of her separation and was almost instantly hooked on it. That's how they get you. <laughs> In her Howard Stern interview, she said, I didn't do drugs until I was 25. I got a divorce from my husband and I started hanging out with this guy I was sort of madly in love with. He had already done all of his drugs, but he had a lot of druggy friends. I had heard that cocaine made you peppy and happy and I was sort of depressed because I'd gotten a divorce and wrecked everybody's lives. Mm. So I thought, I'm going to try this. I took one snort of cocaine and I go, oh my God, I'm going to do this every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Not not great. She will say it does not take long before mm -hmm. her dabbling becomes a full-blown addiction, claiming her cocaine use made her, her words not mine, quote-unquote crazy. Eventually, Allie started to be more bothered by her compulsion to use cocaine than she was about actually using cocaine itself. Kirsty explained she didn't like being compelled to do something and wanted to take back control of her life. Good. That's good. I mean, honestly, drug addictions are hard. They're well, and, tough. and like California in the 70s and 80s, like it was just a wash in cocaine. Like it, it's unusual that, you know, Steve Martin didn't. And uh, it's just, yeah. She has a wake up call. This is on Celebrity Big Brother UK. There's a particular episode of that that Kirsty talks about the wake up call she had during her days of cocaine addiction when she was supposed to be babysitting her sister's kids. Yeah. She <sighs> said, I had my niece and nephew around. I went upstairs and I was snorting coke. Then I came down and I was taking care of them. And I thought, my God, I'm up here snorting coke and then coming down and taking care of these babies. This is horrible. I called my sister and lied and said I wasn't feeling well. Could she pick up the kids? That's when I just went, you've lost your soul totally. I had stepped over the line. Now the crazy was running me instead of being wild. I mean, it, I'm glad that she had that insight without anything bad happening to the kids, you know? Well, guess what happens next? Oh, no. Her fiancé at the time has a friend who comes to visit who happens to be a Scientologist. And one day the friend was talking to Kirsty about Scientology and Kirsty asked if it could help her with her compulsion to use cocaine. The friend assured her, Scientology could help you, and I will send you a book. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Kirsty goes to her mailbox, uh -huh. and sure enough, there's a copy Boom. of Dianetics, Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard. By L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, God. Kirsty admits to doing cocaine while reading the actual book. Mm -hmm. Eventually, she believes that Scientology will help her. So she packs up Wichita, leaves for L.A. in order to kick her cocaine habit. I mean, now it, it's a sequence of events. Wichita to L.A. is not a month-long drive. However. Does it take her a month? It does take Kirsty a month to get to Los Angeles driving because she keeps getting sidetracked and going to different places to buy cocaine along the way. She'll eventually make it to Los Angeles in 1979 and begins the Scientology rehab program Narconon. Kirsty finds success with Narconon 
and hence becomes a faithful Scientologist. Okay. Kirstie is in LA. She's continuing her work as an interior designer. She appears on a few game shows, including Match Game in 1979 and Password Plus in 1980. And it was on one of these game shows that she was spotted by the screenwriter and director of Star Trek, Nicholas Meyer, who thought that Kirstie looked a bit like a Vulcan. So Kirstie was cast as Vulcan Starfleet Office Lieutenant Savick. Don't know. This is in the Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in 1982. Okay, so this is a movie. Yeah, I was like, what Star Trek was on that night? So film. Film. Film role. Look at her. The movie. Right from game shows to... This is her first acting gig. Film. (laughs) First acting gig. Well received critically and at the box office. But Kirstie will not reprise her role and was replaced by actress Robin Curtis in future Star Trek movies with much speculation about why that perhaps happened. Hmm. According to William Shatner, in his book, Star Trek Movie Memories, Shatner writes that Kirstie left the franchise over money. Apparently, Allie tells Shatner regarding the next Star Trek movie, Paramount's offer came in very, very low. It was less than they offered me for the first one, so I figured they weren't interested in me playing the part. Leonard Nimoy was quoted in Shatner's book as well, saying, We just couldn't afford her. She'd been paid a decent sum for Star Trek II for a beginner, and I think the studio was prepared to pay her more than twice that for three. Little murky. It remains Mm -hmm. unclear what that story is. But after Star Trek, Kirsty, spunky, plucky. Well, and she's got a credit now. Has several small roles in movies and television, including The Love Boat. Love it. I mean, that show always needed 30 people for every episode. In 1985, Kirstie will play Gloria Steinem in the television movie A Bunny's Tale, Hmm. based on Steinem's 1963 article about working at the Playboy Club. Right. I think we covered that a little bit in our Hugh Hefner story a long time ago. In 1985-86, Kirstie will star alongside Patrick Swayze and others including her husband, then husband, in the television miniseries, North and South. Oh, okay. I didn't know she was in that. So we're going to, that's taken Kirstie's acting and career through 1986. But let's shuffle back to 1981 and introduce the mystery of the Hardy Boy, the dreamiest Hardy Boy, Parker Mm -hmm. Stevenson. These two meet by sheer coincidence and happenstance one night in 1981. Kirstie has gone out club hopping with her BFF, Mimi Rogers. Wow. Okay. Little Tom Cruise along. Uh Wow. Kirstie sees Parker at a restaurant and Parker has a date at the restaurant and Mimi and Kirsty see him and then follow Parker and the date to the next place they're going, which happens to be the Daisy. Oh my God. Spiderwebs <laughs> for after dinner drinks mm-hmm. and dancing. Kirsty remembers being entranced by Parker right after seeing him. And the more drinks she had, the less she cared that he was actually on another date. After successfully getting his attention and monopolizing him on the dance floor, his date interrupted the two 
and angrily said to Parker, We're leaving. And Kirsty does not let Parker speak. Kirsty will look at his date and say, That's cool, because Parker's leaving too with me. <clears throat> wow, that's some mean girl. She said she'd never been so brazen before in her life, but Parker does not protest, and the two do leave the Daisy together that night. All right. Parker will say, Kirsty picked me up in a bar. At the time, I was burned out, and she had this wonderful conviction and joy about what she was doing. I'd lost that, so being around her was great. A little further along in Parker's recollections, he will say, Kirsty and I are exact opposites. That's what made it so interesting. Whether it was politics or diets or cars or music, we had such different opinions on everything. And for real different, Kirsty loves rap music. Parker listens to classical. Hmm. She smokes. He does not. He is big into the Episcopal Church. She is a Scientologist, but hey, opposites attract. <laughs> they date for two years, and apparently opposites got to get married. So they do get married. December 23rd, 1983, they elope to Neil Sadaka's house in Westport, Connecticut to okay. get married. I mean, sure, you may as well just tie the knot with someone you have nothing in common with. Well, she'll say she's rowdy and impatient. Parker is conservative and lovely. Okay. In 1991, Kirstie wins the Emmy for Best Lead Actress in a Comedy Series for Cheers. Mm -hmm. She creates a lot of buzz with her acceptance speech. I don't know if you remember this. 1991, this was shocking. She shocks the audience. When she thanks her husband, Parker Stevenson, quote, the man who has given me the big one for the last eight years, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> I do not remember that. That's, wow. Okay. Kirsty remained a loyal Scientologist since coming to LA. And Stevenson doesn't become part of Scientology. But Kirsty will tell Barbara Walters in 1992 that that just didn't cause any problems in their marriage at all. Kirsty does have a devastating miscarriage, and the couple will adopt their first child in 1992, a son. They adopt another child, a daughter, in 1994. Kirsty will describe her marriage to Parker as the most stable years of her life, but still says that every so often she would experience the heebie-jeebies of marriage, quote-unquote. When I was married to Parker, life seemed to go along smoothly, then bam! I'd meet some handsome temptation and I was off the rails for a few months. Then I'd sort it all out and go with the marriage again for another four years. And so it went until the last time. Kirsty claims she never officially cheats on Parker, but the couple does decide to end their marriage after 13, 14 years of marriage in okay. 1997. There is a joint statement that they release where the pair declares... We intend to remain the best of friends and devoted parents to our two children. Kirsty will tell Entertainment Weekly just a few months later, there was no infidelity in my marriage on either side. There was nothing other than maybe different goals in life. Parker Stevenson's initial filing for divorce revealed that the actor seeks custody of the two children, then ages three and five, along with $75,000 a month to aid in their upbringing. That's a lot. The official divorce decree was granted in May of 1998. 
The couple did divide their assets, which included a 21-bedroom mansion in Maine, and they shared custody of the kids. About a year and a half after the divorce is final, Stevenson will tell People Magazine that Kirsty and I are not friends now. Oh. (laughs) But we talk regularly about the kids. Will we be friends someday? I don't know. So... I mean, this is why you pay publicists. (laughs) Neither person handled the divorce well, apparently. Kirsty will say in her 2012 book, The Art of Men, it got a little nasty. We were both jerks. It happens. I mean, that it happens. So for most of their time as a divorced couple, though, the two have been able to have an amicable relationship, which goes along great until like 2016 when their first grandchild is born. Many sources will report that Parker Stevenson was desperate to rescue the grandson from Scientology. Oh. Mm -hmm. This is from an article by the Inquisitor from September 2017. Radar Online claims that Allie's ex, Parker Stevenson, is seeking the help of Leo Remini because his son and grandson have been at the Scientology Center in Los Angeles since the baby was born last week. And he is concerned that they are not free to leave. Wow. Parker's been having family meetings to try to come up with a plan to save this baby. He has expressed some concern that Scientology has quote unquote snatched the baby. Oh, God. Leah told Parker he's going to have to bide his time and do not do anything rash right now. Or the Scientologists will get an even firmer grip on the kids and the new baby. This is so miserable. (sighs) In happier news, Parker Stevenson has remarried. He remarried in 2018 to celebrity chef Lisa Schoen, and it looks like these two are doing great. Wishing you the best, Parker and Lisa. We're not done with Kirsty, though. Yeah. Because there is an (laughs) affair, I use that very loosely, with Patrick Swayze. That occurs. So we're going to back up the bus back up to 85, 86. North and south. Sure. Kirsty admits that she was in love with Patrick Swayze while they were both married. It happens on the set of North and South. Problematically, (laughs) Parker Stevenson is also starring in the miniseries as Billy Hazard, who is the brother to Kirsty Alley's character, Virginia Hazard. But hey, miniseries romances, friends. (laughs) Kirsty claims they never had sex, she and Patrick, but says the relationship was more of a betrayal to their spouses than if it had become sexual. They're on a different kind of filming thing, and there's a drunken evening, and Kirsty finally says to Patrick, Patrick, I want to make love with you. I don't care anymore. Let's just do it. And she says that Patrick replies, no, come on, you're drunk, Kirsty. You don't want to do it. <laughs> this is You're not that girl. You will regret it for the rest of your life. If we're going to be together, we're not starting out like this. Which is, heads up, good job, Patrick Swayze. That's not the way to start. For sure. I'm just wondering if her sense that this was a requited situation is accurate. Well, hold on. Okay. (laughs) There's more. So although the relationship was not consummated that night, with only two weeks left of shooting, the couple will spend every available moment together. And finally, before the filming is over, he asked her, not for the first time, according to Kirsty, to divorce her husband and marry him. 
That, Kirstie, prob- that probably happened. Probably happened. <laughs> Kirsty said that she realized she was willing to destroy her marriage to be with Patrick Swayze, but she was not willing to destroy his oh, marriage. Oh, come on. <laughs> okay. Kirsty said it was obvious he and his wife had something that few couples ever have together. And if they had started a new life together, she and Swayze would not be as happy together as Swayze and his wife, Lisa. This is absolutely bonkers. Okay. So filming shuts down. Kirsty will go home, confesses everything to Parker Stevenson, and move. And they move probably on. calls Patrick Swayze, who's Dude, like, I don't know, man. She would not get away from me. <laughs> that was the most uncomfortable set I've ever been on. I, I don't know. <laughs> Kirsty will see Patrick Swayze a few times over the years. The last time they see each other was in an event for Muhammad Ali. She's seated next to Patrick and his wife, and when she gets up to use the restroom. Patrick turns to Kirsty and says, according to Kirsty, there's not been a day I haven't thought about you. That doesn't necessarily mean anything good. The last time Kirsty saw Patrick's wife was when Patrick's wife asked Kirsty to speak at Patrick's funeral. The end of Kirsty's speech at Patrick Swayze's funeral. Yeah, this is the last line. No matter what Patrick said or did, no matter what occurred in his short, wild, dramatic life, it all boiled down to one thing. His passion for the love of his life, Lisa. Hmm. Which is very nice. That is very nice. And I guess I, I guess Kirstie Alley must have been an important person in his mind, or his wife wouldn't have asked her to speak at his funeral. Men like her. I mean, I she's there's something very dynamic and very charismatic about her. I can see mm-hmm. why she would be attractive to a certain kind of person. Mm -hmm. So there's an unconsummated affair, apparently, with Patrick Swayze, unrequited, not to be outdone by her open admiration and hardcore love for John Travolta. Kirstie says this is also unconsummated, Mm -hmm. but she says that John Travolta is the greatest love of her life. You should see Kirstie, she and Oprah are talking, and they're talking about how great John Travolta is. Mm-hmm. And one night Oprah's at this party and John Travolta is paying a lot of attention to Oprah and Kirstie's like, but I'm your soulmate. And Oprah's like, no, he's my soulmate. Like apparently John Travolta is captivating, but Kirstie Alley head over heels in love with John Travolta. They've starred together in a lot of movies. They have bonded over their shared belief of Scientology. Mm-hmm. She says she will remain in love with him for all time. So I'm starting to get this maybe just is how Kirstie Alley just engages the world. Okay. Little little eccentric, let's say. We have one more engagement that same year, 1997, 1998, that Kirstie divorces Parker Stevenson. She will begin dating Nevada co-star James Wilder. At this time, Wilder is 17 years younger than Kirsty, and he's also known for his role on Melrose Place. Despite the age difference, the heart wants what the heart wants. It doesn't take long before the pair is engaged. And although they got serious very quickly, they ended almost as quickly engagement over hmm. by 1999. Kirsty says, I just did some real soul searching, and I didn't like myself. I didn't like what I'd become. I'd sort of become something I wasn't. I didn't like the way I was in relationships. I didn't like who I was choosing. I was making a lot of mistakes. So what I decided 
was to really prioritize my life into what was important to me and what I wanted to be known for by myself. That's good. That's healthy. Pretty healthy. Uh, Kirstie Alley's erratic behavior and reputation (laughs) have been all over the Mm -hmm. place in the last 20 years. Yep. She has gained probably the most criticism through her feuds with other public figures. So she, if so, she falls in love easily and also falls into fights easily. Is that what I'm hearing? Spirited. Spirited. Spirited lady. Volatile might be another word. Okay. Yeah. The feuds with other public figures, kind of problem number one. Problem number two, the second thing which really garners a lot of criticism for her is her ardent defense of Scientology. Coming in for the tertiary part of this are her controversial statements on talk shows and social media. Yeah, she's a an interesting Twitterer. There are no real signs of her slowing down there. <laughs> but those public statements don't have a damn thing to do with her trashy divorces. <laughs> and it's already a lot, so I have added... That whole thing to Dumpster Dive for this week on Patreon, because just wowza, those are the two trashy divorces and unconsummated affairs of Kirstie Alley. Yeah. Trash cans. All of them? Yeah. Volatile trash cans. But it is a magical mystery (laughs) where all of the spirited trash cans are hiding. Oh. Maybe they're in the Scientology Center. See what you did there. We need some sleuths Mm. to take the trash cans into a whole new direction. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's Kirstie Alley. Wow. All right. Little Hardy Boys action there. I hope that you have enjoyed our... Only Murders in the Building themed episode, such as it is. <laughs> yeah, welcome back to season 12. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of fun coming up. We appreciate you being here. We, we appreciate do. you listening, being part of the Trash Panda Nation. We'll be back on Wednesday. Ooh, I got a good breakup coming on Wednesday. If you need more Trashy Divorces in the meantime, check us out on patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces. Mm-hmm. There's also some free episodes. I need to get those updated for the season. Where can people find free Patreon stuff? They can find that at bit.ly slash trash candy. Just plug that into a browser. Until we meet again, friends. For more of season 12, keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy. Bye, y'all. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. 
I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there, and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.